And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are live from the bunker here, Jason Hunt, and uh, in in the super secret underground bunker world headquarters. Fifty-one days without an incident here, and counting. And uh, we have uh, an interesting conversation coming up today. Uh, we are uh, the the slogan, the pitch that I'm making for the return of this show is elevating conversations by going deep. And so we are we are going to look into various topics of, of conversation that might or might not be of interest to you, especially if you're in comics, uh, if you're interested in comics. My guest today, artist, writer, penciler, inker, colorist, and now entrepreneur, Mr. Mitchell Brightweiser joins us from Little Rock, Arkansas. Hello, sir. Welcome. Uh, nice to be here, Jason. I'm uh, just curious as to what happened 52 days ago. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were shooting a promo and somebody tripped. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> well, I hope they're doing well uh, in full recovery. Yeah, so she's <laughs> fine. It's uh, it's it's become a running gag around here that uh, that somebody is going to make a trip to the hospital at some point every so often. So. So let's uh, let's start a little bit uh, with Red Rooster. I, I've seen a few interviews and I've seen a couple of uh, a couple of live streams and people talking about your career, how you got started, all of the different things that led up to this. But there has been a lot of chatter, and I look at the Red Rooster uh, pages, and I'm. Um, Let's see here. Where's the Indiegogo? So if I pull up the Indiegogo page, uh, the campaign, your last update was in May. And I just wrote one. It's going to get posted today. Okay. I did it this morning. So or last the, the online reaction to, because the, the Red Rooster thing sort of seems to be the nexus of everything at this point the the indiegogo campaign and the walmart distribution and allegiance arts and there have been a lot of accusations been thrown around there's been a lot of complaints that have that have been flying back and forth so i thought first we'd address some of those and then get into some broader topics as far as the walmart deal and that kind of thing so with all of that said as a setup where are you in terms of the Indiegogo campaign at this point? I am penciling the third and final chapter of the Indiegogo, which is now expanded to 70 pages uh, to get the whole story in. Um, But it is a prime focus for our team right now. We are in the process of contacting printers, uh, finalizing the designs for a lot of our fulfillment items, uh, and producing the last uh, pages of art required to um, make this a reality and fulfill the project and get it into people's hands. What, so. what kind of challenges have you run into? Because you know, we see a lot with, with the crowdfunded books especially, uh, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of excitement, the momentum builds up, and then it's that fulfillment phase that becomes the hangup. Um, Adam Post is uh, one of the creators. He, he's he's uh, uh, what's the graduate of the dead, school of the dead. And his mm-hmm. take on the crowdfunding, uh, he said, have your book done first. Yes. Before uh, that doing- would be my primary <laughs> recommendation. Yeah. Because what happened with us is we had a great idea. Uh, we felt really strongly about it. We noticed fans were feeling very strongly about it. They were producing art. Like I was creating this thing online for everybody. I was doing sketches and posting them, telling them about the story. I was coming onto YouTube and talking about my passion for the project and the character and the world that we were creating. We were writing in the process of writing several, not just one script, the Indiegogo script, but actually several. We were, I was creating a whole, you know, universe for this character at the time. And uh, the enthusiasm was extremely high. Uh, All the pieces were pretty much in place. At least the first chapter of the book was extremely well thought. 
through and thought out and even sketched out in some ways. And then we launched the Indiegogo thinking, well, you know, it, on any given Sunday, it would take, you know, this amount of time. We even people complained when we first did it because uh, they're like, oh, it's not going to fill till March. That's can't you draw it faster than that? Um, of course, at the time, it was a 64 page project or maybe 62. I can't remember but it's expanded a little bit since then. Um, but uh, yeah, what came after the success of the project took uh, my life and my wife's life uh, and our professional careers and pretty much ricocheted through a, a giant pinball machine, uh, you know, trying to get to the jackpot essentially. But uh, yeah, so my recommendation of everybody is to finish your project or have most of it finished in advance of that. Um, in regards to fulfillment, we ran uh, the Allegiance Arts Bundle campaign, mm -hmm. which was um, learning the lessons that we ex learned through the Indiegogo process the first time. Uh, as a company and as a brand, we ran a campaign. A lot of people have forgotten about that, but um, the books are out there and being very and very successful. But uh, that campaign was for three books bundled together, each of them 26 pages, I believe, no, 24, 24 pages. Um, and the, the books were mostly done by the time we ran the campaign. And that campaign fulfilled, I think, on time, maybe a week or two late, uh, I think, but the books went to, to press pretty much right on the money. Uh, and, and those books are now that campaign's totally closed. All the books are sent out, including the overseas books. So we've already learned the lessons uh, from traveling this road once with the Red Rooster and have applied it to our uh, our Allegiance Arts campaign already and uh, with great success. And uh, everyone was very pleased. We didn't have very many hiccups along that path. So let me ask you this then. Uh, we've got questions in the chat. When do you expect to fulfill... Uh, Red Rooster Golden Age, which is the one that everybody's been waiting on. In in the next couple of months. Okay. In the next couple of months. Yeah. I, I don't want to give an exact date because I haven't actually scheduled the printer yet. So I don't know when they're going to roll off the press, but we are all hands on deck right now. We have a, a gap in our publishing schedule. And so we're going to be, it's, it's everybody's focus. Now this, uh, Sci-Fi Snob in the chat points out this was one of the first Indiegogo comics uh, projects like this, and certainly it's probably a you know it's a learning experience not only for you guys but for other people who are putting books together. Um, and some could probably look at Red Rooster perhaps as a cautionary tale of sorts on on the things not to do. Looking back at the process so far. Can you see at, at various places where mistakes might have been made and corrections needed to happen? What was you, you talk about bouncing around like a pinball? Um, what challenges have you run into in fulfilling the Indiegogo book? Well, the, the primary challenge uh, was, <clears throat> excuse me, um, on the heels of the success of the campaign, we stumbled into uh, opportunities and successes that we didn't anticipate. Uh, and it was the opportunity to walk this path with Walmart and their newsstand distributor, which not, which not only does uh, Walmart, but they distribute to tens of thousands of other locations, uh, you know, across the nation and the opportunity to build a publishing venture with just the right partners um, was something that uh, we felt at the time we had to pursue and I'm glad that we did pursue it, but it became, uh, it's, it certainly was overwhelming. And producing a publishing venture from scratch uh, with, our original commission was for eight books. And I said, no way, I can't do eight books. Um, had to find the funding for the company, had to build the brand, had to hire, had to you know, get artists and writers and other creators involved, all the content was uh, developed in-house um, to meet the needs of uh, or meet the requirements of the initiatives that are the contracts that we were signing and the initiatives we 
were trying to launch and it was just in it's just just intense it's and it still is intense right. and trying to create art for those that are artists and are familiar with or even had tried and uh, tried to draw a comic book uh, at at the level of quality that you know you expect from a marvel or dc book knows it's an incredibly difficult process even for the best artist on his best day uh, and you know we're producing this red rooster book which to us is a labor of love and it's i'm very deeply passionate about this project and the character and i don't want to just um i'm not gonna you know rush it exactly you yeah. know I, I i i'm trying to work uh expeditiously but not sacrifice uh, the quality just for, not only for myself, but for the fans of the book and for the backers of the book, because I think they deserve uh, a book of high quality and art of high quality. Um, but uh, we also uh, want to broaden the customer base with the publishing company of high quality and other books of matching quality. And I think we've achieved all of that. Uh, and in ret in we're in the process of, of achieving all of it, that's for sure. Now, some would say that the quality of DC and Marvel at, at the time, especially Marvel, is not what it once was. So the the idea of, you know, we need to get these books done, we need to get them done to the best of our ability at the highest quality level, I would assume that that's affecting some of the rollout because you're taking your time to get the artwork done. But I want to go back to something that you mentioned about getting the funding, because uh, that raises a question of how the money has been used, how the money has been spent. Because some people are saying, well, Mitch used the Indiegogo money to build this new company, very much like we saw with the Axonar uh, Star Trek fan film, where money was raised to make this fan film, and then suddenly he's got this production company and a studio and all this other stuff. And there's questions of how that money gets allocated. So if you could, you know, you, you mentioned getting the funding. You've got another partner that comes in and David Martin, how, without getting too much into the weeds and the nuts and bolts of, of the financials, how did that relationship set up? And then where's the separation between the Indiegogo money and what you used for Allegiance? Uh, well, uh, to answer the money question first, uh, it's um, David and I and Elizabeth approached investors early on in the initiative looking for just to capitalize a nascent publishing venture. And we succeeded in doing that to, uh, I would say, a reasonable degree. We got enough money to to create the company and get it going. And the backer money was not used for the company. And I, I've outlined all this. I mean, I've told everyone in uh, previous backer updates on the Indiegogo probably several times, but, you know, rumors just fly across the Internet. And well, plus I'm the fact that play... the, the backers the backers are one group of people that you're getting that information to, whereas right. the general public and the comics, the comics environment in that space may not necessarily be aware of all of the different things that have been going on behind the scenes. So Correct. You, you've been... In, as as somebody who wears many different hats here, I can understand bouncing back and forth from project to project and different priorities and trying to get it all done at the same time. So I certainly understand the chaos that ensues. I've still got a couple of projects that are two, three years behind. So yeah, I get that. But it's your part. It when when Walmart when the Walmart deal came in. That threw, I would imagine, that threw everything out of whack in terms of the schedule because now suddenly you have contractual obligations to put some kind of a product in over 3,000 stores. What was that and like? Investors. What? And investors' responsibilities to the investors that, that, that came into the company, which I greatly value, of course. Uh, and uh, some of them have become dear friends in the process. Uh, and... Um, but yeah, that's it's. Go ahead. I, I kind of interrupted your, your. No, that's fine. You're 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 actually along the along the lines of what we're talking about here because that sense of obligation, that sense of responsibility that you have, not only to the people who put money into your company, 
but the backers over on on the on the crowdfunding and the creators involved as well so now there are families that are you know putting food on their tables by creating art for Elysian Arts comic books Sure. Uh, for the Allegiance Arts customers. So. But you come in and now you've got somebody that's interested in helping you put this in in the Walmart stores. And I imagine I can imagine how overwhelming that is. But suddenly here's the contract that says you must have X number of books in our stores by X date. Was that one of those oh crap during the headlights moments when you realize just what you're what you're stepping into or did it hit later? Uh, no, no, it was, it was immediate. <laughs> it was immediate. Uh, I, we had, um, uh, we got the word uh, right as we had returned from a vacation. The one vacation, we scheduled our vacation before the campaign ever launched and haven't had a vacation since. So I'm thankful that we had the vacation. But we got the word the day we got back on the way back from our vacation. And um, it was just like, Wow, this is incredible! And oh, oh bleep! What are we going to do now? <laughs> you know, and we just ran with uh, a lot of faith and conviction in our product, our ability to create product um, on this level. Uh, the uh, and just trust in each other, like me and my wife especially, uh, and that we had. Uh, some great creators on the line that were very interested in participating. And um, we just stepped out into a, uh, a, an unknown world. And it was, it was, um, it was frightening and, uh, and uh, inspirational. And it was kind of a, a, a mix, just a, a very much a mix of, of emotions of fear and enthusiasm. So what was the what were the steps you from the Indiegogo is a hit you've got the success there and now suddenly you're having conversations with someone about getting into Walmart how did that happen you said you said you kind of stumbled into it it, it yeah. was one of those just it just so happened you know somebody who knows somebody or or where where did that come from to start with yeah I'll I'll, I'll try to be as brief as possible so oh we got uh, an hour. Really, okay. <laughs> Well, I can, I can always go a little over if you need, but it's because um, <clears throat> uh, I'm enjoying this conversation. Uh, this is a, a great questions because I feel like these are questions people don't usually ask because I think I'm going to be uncomfortable about them. But, but in fact, I really want to talk about these things because there's a lot of uh, rumors flying around and it's best to clear, clear the air in one, one place. Um, so I have a really good friend who ran a, who still runs a, a tech and marketing business and he's a huge comic book collector. We've been best friends for a long time and I, I, he's an entrepreneur and very successful. And so I talked to him about these ideas I have about comic books and looking for, uh, de you know, developing this IP that I've been wanting to develop for or release for quite some time. And, um, and it was just the year 2018 when, uh, our experience and our network and our uh, our ability to market and sell intellectual property as proven by the campaign and the nature of the comic book business at that time. And I still, I still think it's a business that's very much in flux, obviously, and, and is ripe for opportunity. But at the time we saw an opportunity and that opportunity was getting, um, uh, you know, starting with crowdfunding and then branching out and getting comic books back into neighborhood marketplaces where I discovered them as a kid in a very small town in Arkansas. And as I asked other creators and bands and collectors uh, and hobby store owners where they've discovered them, you know, eight times out of 10, it was in the neighborhood drugstore or in the neighborhood Kroger or wherever, uh, or their dad picked it up somewhere in, in town, in a small town. And right. as the number of comic book stores begin to dwindle and they are mainly now in Little Rock, we have a, couple of really great ones but in a lot of uh, places that are suburbs are not the metro areas then they are essentially uh, deserts for this kind of material especially as a as a guy living in the south you you can travel for hours and hours and hours and never hit a comic book shop right so um, we felt like if we could get excellent content uh, back into the neighborhoods of small towns all across America where these books 
the what I call the full sensory experience of a comic book, the, the touch of it, the smell of it, um, the, the excitement of uh, the, the entire experience can be just on display for anyone, any kid or adult uh, or father or mother to pick up, uh, then that's a chance to reignite an industry that is very much in a state of, um, of, of flux and, uh, and bring in an entire new generations of fans to a medium that many of us hold, uh, that we hold dear and I think culturally has a lot of great value. So that was the business pitch. And he, my friend said, you need to talk to this gentleman, David Martin, who is who I had met before in town. Arkansas is kind of a small place, so you get to know people. Uh, but he said, you need to take this to David and uh, see what he thinks about it. And so I, I did. And, and David was an experienced CEO of a, a marketing firm and, and uh, as well as a, a couple of marketing firms, actually, uh, and was somewhat you know connected uh, in the state and uh, we we pitched him on this uh, plan, and he did a little research and thought there was actually something there. And uh, so we developed. Um, this was all transpiring during the campaign, and so that was kind of the proof in the pudding. And so you know, we just made some calls. Uh, camp campaign ended. You know, I set to uh, to work drawing the campaign and uh, and uh, or drawing the book. Uh, and then he would just, uh, he made some calls and, and we got, uh, we took a couple trips to Bentonville, which is where Walmart is located. It's about three hours from Little Rock. Sorry. Um, and, uh, we just made several presentations to different individuals and putting together the present presentations was quite a, a thing. I was on the phone talking with artists like David Williams and Butch Geis to uh, gauge their interest. I was already just having discussions with some of these individuals thinking about what books we might launch if this opportunity could arise um, because I had to prepare like it was right. So we had to prepare as if this thing was going to be real. And then we presented to some business leaders in the Northwest Arkansas business community. Um, and every pitch went very, very well. Uh, I got I must, I have to say it was very uh, validating that experienced business people thought there was something here. It wasn't just a, they, they believe in content. So I think that's an encouraging thing for creators out there that are wanting to be independent. Business people are interested in content uh, because that was kind of the, the hinge of our pitch. It wasn't just about getting books in people's backyard, but getting, because uh, the content of a comic book has a life beyond the book itself. Right. So now, now uh, when you you were having these conversations, you're in the middle of the campaign, the campaign's done, and were you expecting it to move as quickly as it did? No. Or was uh, this something that was just, oh, well, you know, we just have some conversations and six months from now, a year from now, maybe maybe we'll get something. This thing happened fairly quickly. I'm it happened sorry. really quickly. And uh, as I've gone through this, I mean, this is my first time through this whole process. So, right. but as I go through this process and I talk to other business people that have represent their vendor reps into Walmart that have done, you know, work for big food companies or repped big, you know, big, whatever outdoor supply or whatever it may be. They're like, what you did is kind of insane because you pitched Walmart on vaporware. Yeah. Essentially there really wasn't a product. We had a pitch, a vision, uh, incredible creators that were interested and um, what we feel is really excellent content. Um, but it's in where we were with, with funding, you can't go and make a whole bunch of comic books uh, in advance because that does get very expensive. We were not like coming in here with big Hollywood money. We were very much a ground up, you know, from the ground up startup, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of uh, startup. Uh, and they tell us that you came in with like basically not a product, all right, a vision. Well, and it, it and other people me, say that it takes a couple of years or yeah. more just to even get an audience with Walmart. It reminds uh, me of the story that Todd McFarlane tells about getting the Spawn toys in Toys R Us, where you know he's he's got a successful book, he's got a comic book, and it's and it's fairly well received, and people know it, and it's popular. And he's at this toy fair, and he's got a booth, and he's got empty, uh, empty uh, toy cards 
and no product to show. And the guy, you know, the buyer from Toys R Us comes by and the assistant knows the comic book. He's like, oh, no, this, this guy is, is worth a look. It's one of those things where it's, it's right place, right time. Oh crap. Now what, you know, type thing is what it, it was, what it sounds like. Cause I've, you know, I've, I've been down to some of the vendor workshops down there in that area. And to hear some of those stories, you're right. It takes a long time to line these things up for you to get that kind of a turnaround into Walmart. That's rare. Uh, it's, it's not so because when I heard all of a sudden, you know, we're in, you know, you're, you're coming into 3,300 Walmart stores and the book hadn't even done yet. I thought, how did, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, because that's very unusual just based on, on, on my understanding of the process. So, so now the contracts are done. You've got a deadline. How much of the the fulfillment got impacted and delayed by the Walmart deal? Because now suddenly you've got to do that. And you have to get the books in. Did were you able to pivot into okay? Well, book one, book two, you know that's part of the overall book, the main Indiegogo book, because I think that's going to be the first three issues. Is that right? Or, or Yeah, the first three issues is the Indiegogo book. And then we have, uh, the, the story will continue with issue four, five, and six as we finish out season one. Now you talk about the, the changes of the distribution, the way things are in flux. Do you think that, <coughs> excuse me, do you think the speed of this might have been impacted by what we saw w happening with Diamond, and this was all before this was all before the whole collapse with the pandemic and the and the lockdown. But comic book shops have been complaining about Diamond being the monopoly distribution point for a number of years. And so that's been out there at some point. Of course, newsstand went away a long time ago. But like you said, there are a lot of people that that's how they discovered comic books was in the 7-Elevens and the, and the, you know, the used bookstores and, and that sort of thing, the convenience stores. Do, was there ever a conversation about the possibility that Diamond, as a single point of failure, could go away at some point you maybe just there was an opportunity there did was that ever part of the conversation uh you know that without going too deep i could definitely say it was part of what we researched uh and it was a a plausible scenario just simply because it is a single point of failure and the market was extremely disrupted uh throughout essentially the last several <clears throat> number of years <clears throat> excuse me um so it, it was, uh, it, it entered the conversation, excuse me, <coughs> uh, for sure. But we weren't counting on it by any right. stretch. In fact, that what what happened over the last few months, nobody would have predicted at all. So, you know, we knew that there were issues, but we, we could never have predicted what has happened. Now, at one point, I understand, and, and correct me on this because I'm, I'm, I'm coming at this kind of sideways on this. Mark Pellegrini's involvement. Uh, because he was writing and then he wasn't. Is that something that you could get into what happened there and how much did that impact getting the book out? Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't think I could have drawn any faster, but um, Mark did uh, help me in the early days of Red Rooster uh, creating. Uh, the way it was is I had a, a vision for the character in the world and had a lot of the pieces together. But I really enjoy having a collaborator, um, which Patrick Stiles, our COO, has been a constant collaborator of mine since college. And we developed the Futurist book and the Nora book and, and, and a lot of other things together as well that we'll hopefully get to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, at, at the time when Red Rooster, when I knew I really wanted to go for that project, um, I, it, I needed a collaborator and Mark was here locally and we had a, a couple of we had a few really good meetings and uh, had a, a nice repertoire or a, a nice, uh, uh, we had a nice uh, collaboration for, for a while. Uh, and he did help me take all these uh, various parts of Red Rooster and get them kind of uh, 
streamlined into a good narrative that we're really, really proud of. And we plotted uh, several issues of the book, book together. So we know where the character is going and I know where it's ending and all this kind of good stuff. And he wrote uh, a number, he wrote uh, the, uh, the Golden Age, uh, at least the, the, first, the first final draft of the Golden Age special, uh, particularly the first third of it is really super tight. Uh, and then we have just had, uh, I guess, um, there's no, I have no uh, Ill, Ill will towards Mark. And I think he's a, a great talent and a good writer, but perhaps just wasn't the best fit for the project long-term. And so we've revised a few things, particularly in the second and third issues of Red Rooster that make up the, um, the, the Golden Age special. Mm-hmm. But Mark's voice will be a part of the Red Rooster uh, story for a while, even in issues four, five, six, and seven, probably, maybe even a little bit beyond that because of, and he'll be credited, uh, you know, appropriately as well with uh, what's in the, what's presented in the material. And uh, we're all extremely proud of it and and proud of Mark. And I think he has a a very bright future in comic books. Now, issue number two has just come out. Uh, There's a question in the chat. Is issue number three going to come out before the Indiegogo book comes out. So I'm going to be able to go to Walmart. I'm going to be able to buy these three books before the Indiegogo book that was supposed to be out last March, 2019. uh, Yes, you will get the Indiegogo is our prime directive right now. Like we just had a big meeting about it yesterday. Everybody's on a point and on task and, and it's, it has our, our whole focus in terms of design and fulfillment and, fleshing it out and, and myself drawing and um, and Elizabeth coloring, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, in, unless something, barring something extreme, like, you know, an illness or something like that happens, then yes, it, you, you'll, you'll be getting that book before. All right. So the end, perhaps, is- perhaps international backers, which, you know, cause we're, we're fulfilling 3000 books, excuse me. Right. So it will take some time to, not everybody will get them on day one, so it takes some time to uh, for us uh, to to deliver all those things. So, but um, but we're we're all hands on deck. So, out of all of this, what are your top two takeaways? If you had to do it differently, what lessons have you learned that can be applied to either? the next project or you know advice you give to other people who are trying the crowdfunding what's your what's that one thing right there at the top that oh if i had only known x uh well the the biggest one is to uh, have more of your pages done that's the biggest one you know we uh ventured and we were at the crest of the wave that broke the shore um, and we were riding on a lot of enthusiasm. We had a great product and a great idea and it was resonating with people and it felt like the right time to launch. And maybe it was, and maybe it wasn't. It's, it's hard. It's hard to say because if we had a delayed, um, and for the time it took me to draw, you know, half, half the project, um, it also wouldn't have been the same project because we refined it over time. I think it's a, it's a better project now than it would have been then. Right. Um, it's, and, uh, but also we might've missed that opportunity. So it's, it's a little hard to say that, you know, knowing what I know now, I'd go back and do things differently because I don't, I don't know, but I would recommend that everyone considering doing a crowdfund, um, first of all, scale, scale it back. Um, I would recommend something like a 32 page project, 32 to 40 pages. Initially it was supposed to be 40 to I think 42 pages, uh, but we decided that I decided it wasn't enough to tell the story I wanted to tell for Red Rooster, um, and now it's 70. Um, but it, it works for it works for me because uh, we're we're able to bundle it into three issues. But so the two biggest things though I would recommend, especially if you're um, more uh, I want to say amateur, but you're um, coming just, up, just getting started, just getting started in yeah. this. Try to scale, tighten your story so that it fits in a smaller 
um, space, you know, 30, 32 pages, 26 to 32 is a pretty good sweet spot, I would say. Uh, and then get most of your work done in advance. And if, if you do those two things, it makes it your life a lot easier. <laughs> now, um, with the with the, the books in Walmart, um, and I imagine that you probably can't get into the exact figures, but how are sales doing? Because I see a lot of posts on social media, people talking about you know, either one or two of the titles are sold out or there's only one or two copies left. It seems like just on anecdotal ev evidence that these books seem to be doing pretty well in the stores. Is that yes. is that so, actually the case, or it, it? Of course, it varies from market to market, um, and we're still drilling down into uh, the store by store data. I should we hopefully we'll get another store by store breakdown because uh, we don't get store by store breakdowns every week, but we do get sales data every week. Um, but the store by store breakdown lets us know like which maybe some stores that aren't rolling them out uh, appropriately. What we're finding is that the stores that merchandise correctly sell well. And that's what we're finding. And that's really a, a great sign. So that means when, but not all stores merchandise well. It sounds like you've had some experience with Walmart and mass, mar mass merchandisers. And so if you have, then you understand that it is uh, a jungle yeah. <laughs> in a lot of cases and getting your product rolled out smoothly uh, across 3,400 retailers that, um, you know, most of the people there don't know uh, a lick about comic books. Um, it's, or any of the products are rolling out, quite frankly, yeah. then it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a wild ride in some places. And we're trying to figure out where those are, uh, how we can over, how do we can, how we as a company can manage expect manage both the merchandisers and the expectations of customers and uh, but what we're finding is that where they're merchandised appropriately the books are selling all right percentage wise can you, can you ballpark how many how much how, how uh, well is it doing i mean not not getting into the dollars but you know we yeah. always see you know the comic-con numbers about units being sold and stuff going to the retailers and whatnot and of course we don't see the retail numbers off of that, but would you characterize the sales as being about average compared to what's going on in the comic shops and, and digital, or are you above average? You're about 60%, 50%. Where, where do you think that is? I, I mean, I don't know. I think, I feel like if I answer that, I mean, compared to what I, I because the way our, products are sold uh, is very different from the way that the numbers you're seeing on Chromicon because Chromicon is a lot of just books shipped, you know, so these aren't necessarily books sold to actual customers. Whereas our sales data that we get reflects actual scans, like they're actual scans, people that picked up the books, took it to the checkout and got it scanned by a, uh, a Walmart uh, uh, checkout person right so right. Uh, it's, it's different and it's hard to compare the data so I, I hate to venture into this very far uh maybe at some time we'll put put out um some first of all i want to make sure our, our investors get this data first sure uh and uh and then maybe after that we'll we'll formalize something for the the customers and fans of what we're doing so they can really kind of look and see yeah, I, I think it would be it would be interesting to see you know a comparison between how many how many books actually shipped out and how many books actually sold when you look at issue number one of the of each of the four titles because I was I would imagine that some of the titles are selling better than others because of the kind of stories they tell but if if you're looking at you know we shipped. 600,000 and we only sold 10,000. That's a lot different from shipping 600,000 and we sold, you know, 450,000. So, no yeah, it, it just it just on the impression of the numbers, you think it's doing well enough, better than expected? It's it's doing uh it's doing well. It's doing very well and our vendor rep what we're gauging cuz we don't have anything to compare it to. Sure. So, at, I mean, for me it's like I want to sell out all the books. Um, and of course, that's unrealistic, uh, especially when not all stores uh, are merchandising properly and all that kind of stuff. So we have to rely on the expectations of people like our vendor rep, who is a, a, an awesome guy. 
and very experienced in this, former Disney executive, uh, and uh, he feels very strongly about the sales, right? And so that's, uh, which, is, which is where we have to rely. Uh, and also investors uh, who, who are feeling very good and um, our distribution partners who also uh, have expressed a lot of positivity around uh, the launch, especially given the circumstances of the May 5th launch um, with the number of you know retailers that were, number of shoppers that uh, essentially can't make it to the stores uh, are, you know, just obviously we had, there were circumstances around May and still are. Right. Uh, but uh, given all of those considerations, uh, our uh, the reactions from our experienced uh, partners have been very, very positive. Now, you talk about being merchandised properly. Does that include getting the price sticker off the cover? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we think we have a, so we um, the way uh, we're incredibly frustrated by it. And it was a, we were horrified when the issue ones hit the shelf. Uh, and nearly all of them had stickers on them, um, covering up sometimes key information like the the logo or the season one, episode one nomenclature. Uh, so that's definitely uh, an issue uh, that has become a bane. And it's somewhat comical, but not comical when a collector decides if, uh, they won't buy it and they, they walk away and purchase something else. Uh, so that we take that very seriously. Um, so as soon as it, we knew about it, we contacted our partners, our, distri our distributor, because these the stickers were applied at, at one of their five, they have five distri distribution, uh, or DCs, distribution centers. And the stickers are applied there, and you're talking about a, a, a distribution company that ships, I mean, they just do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of product every week to tens of thousands of merchandisers and it's just kind of on automatic that the Walmart stuff gets the sticker. Um, and so uh, it, we didn't anticipate it on the first time around. And on the second time around, we were emphatically expressed uh, our, uh, our, uh, we voiced our opinion that these should not be included. And they agreed uh, <laughs> because it's more work for them. It seems kind of count it's very counterintuitive. And obviously our customers don't uh, like it. Uh, and neither do we. So uh, the message did was received and did go out, um, and but it didn't make it all the way to <laughs> to where it needed to make it every single time. So what we're trying to figure out is how many of the five distribution centers actually put stickers on the issue twos. Some of them, uh, it's clear that they did. Uh, we believe that we have a fix for the third issue, um, and what we're going to do. Uh, this is us as a company being proactive, our plan for the third issue. So the way, the way these are done, these are from the boxes of like comic books mm -hmm. and those 80 comic books arrive in the DCs and then they pull them out and separate them by however many count that go in the stores. In the case of issue two, it was 10 and they put the stickers on them right there. So what we're going to do next time is have the printer shrink wrap the, the books, uh, you know, maybe however many we're going to ship to each store, be it probably eight or so. Uh, and they're going to just shrink wrap eight books at a time, then box them up and then send them to the DCs. And then we should solve our sticker problem. So we're being very proactive as a company about that. And, and we regret that uh, customers are experiencing a hiccup in their enjoyment of the product for sure. Now, when you mentioned there's 10 issues that are going to be out on the merchandise, uh, on the, on the displays, your first issue, there were only, I think what, four copies a piece, six copies a piece. And, and, oh, there were 10 and, in the first one. Okay. All right. For some reason mm -hmm. I was thinking there were fewer than that. Um, but all right. So, so in terms of distribution in the overall broad sense of this in the comic space now, you have DC going to Lunar, UCS, they're using Penguin Random House, Alterna's doing their own thing, uh, Diamond is doing their, you know, comebacks, greater than the setback stuff, you've got Scholastic. The YA space seems to be opening up, we're seeing some of the numbers there in, in graphic novels and YA books. Has there been any discussion about getting into that arena 
with Allegiance? Are you guys just going to stick with these four books for a while and just kind of let it ride and smooth things out? Or what's what's the plan past get the get the Indiegogo book out, then mm-hmm. what? Uh, we'll get the Indiegogo book out as a uh, prime directive, and then uh, we then get our issue three books out, uh, and then we plan to uh, repackage content uh, as we're producing, continuing to produce the comic book periodicals, uh, which is, I think, a unique and collectible style of product. Uh, the, the next strategy for us is to rebind, recycle, re, uh, not recycle, but rebind the material into a collected edition. Um, maybe something perhaps uh, in a three issue, we're looking at three issue uh, volumes, essentially, maybe what we might call graphic uh, digests uh, that are a little shorter than a six issue graphic novel, but uh, you know, a little cheaper and uh, maybe with a little bit different of a, a branding on them and targeting those into the young adult market. So the way our distributor has placed us within the Walmart, and of course, distributing further afield from Walmart, because right. our dis- distributor that we're working with has a reach that's much broader. Walmart is their largest client, um, but they service many, many, many other clients, including newsstand clients and other mass market clients, pharmacies and uh, grocery grocery chains and, and, and uh, even Hudson News in the airports, which I think we would also love to, to be in eventually. Uh, when air travel <laughs> resumes in mass, hopefully. Sure. Um, but uh, yes, that, that's the next stage for Allegiance Arts is to go further afield from Walmart uh, with uh, in a in a in a different product category because those customers are different. They maybe want they don't mind waiting for a trade. They they value the cheaper price per page. Uh, maybe they're a commuter customer that's on a plane or a bus and just needs something they can sit down with for 30 minutes and just escape on the way back home from work. Whatever the case may be, there's a there's a different. I mean, their book they like it on the bookshelf. You know, whatever the the case may be, there's a large um, a large segment of customers that uh, that want to consume the product that way, and and we want to meet them where they're at. So we'll we'll go further afield from Walmart, but we. Uh, we would like uh, to continue to have Walmart be the destination for the comic book periodicals. And that's the plan as it exists uh, right now. And then we'll probably, we do plan new content as well, eventually. Right now, our focus is making sure these are the best comic books available um, anywhere if possible uh, before we just uh, get a wild here and start making too many new things. But we also have that on the horizon as well. And, and for those things, we'll probably utilize, uh, we'll go back and utilize the crowdfunding um, mechanism, which uh, is honestly an amazing tool. And now that we've had the experience a couple times around, we can refine it and and um, and go to go to market with something that's more complete and and fulfill uh, in a in a manner that the customers are coming to expect from these kinds of projects. Now, given all of the all of the mayhem and chaos that's been going on with the distribution, there's also the mayhem and chaos of people coming after you personally. I'm not. I don't want to get into that because we've only got about ten minutes left. But sure. the you know the inclusion of Kelsey Shannon, Blake Northcott. You know, the, you've been criticized in some circles, and mostly it's been the Twitter blue check marks who have come after you for. Who else is involved? It, is that is that something that ever comes up in conversation? Is that you know we we need to be careful who we approach to be a creative here, or are you looking strictly at skill, merit, interest? What's your what's your criteria for bringing on other creators, and other artists, other writers for? You know, for the for the books that you've got now and and what you may have in the future uh, we're looking for passionate uh, creators that are extremely talented uh, and uh, are that want to work in a collaborative uh, creative environment I mean that's it uh, I, I mean we're we're I think if uh, I think all the creators I mean I know all the creators we're working with are are uh, excellent individuals 
you know, at the, this artists are going to be eccentric uh, to a degree. Uh, and I think as a society, we've tolerated artistic eccentricities for generations, um, you know, all the way back to Oscar Wilde and beyond, you know, well back into our Greek uh, origins of uh, Western artistic history. Um, so that comes with the territory. Uh, you know, uh, we just want, uh, we part of reason. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I, if Blake Northcott is a, a problem, then, then it seems like everybody's going to be a problem and there's no reason to make, there's no point in making comic books ever. Um, so if we just listen to blue check marks on Twitter, we'd all go insane. Uh, eventually we just have to create and be passionate and know that uh, we're just creating something beautiful and true and fearless. And I think all of that is possible. And the more creators that do it uh, now, um, they should, because if, if we let uh, a blue checkmark mob uh, dictate what can and cannot be created, then we're not living in a free society. Well, and and the other thing too is you know, pointed out in the chat now versus two three lost. years ago, you have um, you have more people getting into that crowdfunding space. Um, you know, Ethan's done a number of books now. Clint Stoker's done more more than one. Richard Meyer's done more than one. They're starting to do series of issues, you know, in, in books. So one, two, three in the same story universe. Do you see that as is this a situation where everybody is competing, everybody is building everybody up? Because I see a lot of back and forth signal boosting. People are promoting each other's projects. And that seems to have taken on a life of its own almost in and of itself. Just the Indiegogo books, uh, not necessarily Comicsgate, but Indiegogo and Kickstarter, you've got a lot of those. I mean, Sean Gordon Murphy's doing one. Uh, you've got... Uh, John Malin, you've got Mike Miller, all all of these people that are taking to that as a way of creating the new books. It, do you see that as as a new ground for competition, or is that just an opportunity to just kind of sharpen each other's steel, as it were? I I, I see it as sharpening each other's steel. Uh, you know. I, some of these individuals that you mentioned, not all of them, I mean, almost all of those individuals you mentioned have been, um, I think, unfairly, in many cases, harassed and unduly um, targeted for having the wrong friends or saying the wrong things or crossing the wrong person. Uh, and honestly, I'm thrilled uh, by the amount of success that a lot of talent has been having across the crowdfunding space, because when you... Uh, try to push out uh, individuals, uh, and like I said, artists, you're just going to have to accept that they're, you know, it can be the Wild West, they're eccentric, uh, they're, they, they're going to say things you might not like, um, but when you start essentially bullying people or canceling people, as they call it now, um, don't be afraid when they, or don't, uh, you know, don't complain when they don't stop creating, and in fact, they feel more motivated to go out and succeed on whatever platform will give them a, a, a chance and a space and a voice. And I think that's what you're seeing now. And I hate to, I hate that it is that way. Um, but I'm glad also that it, that it is because it's, I think, um, proof that, uh, there's an immense amount of talent out there and there's an immense amount of customer interest. And, uh, maybe we should quit, uh, Quit tearing each other down and um, and, and encourage talent to succeed. Now, you and you and Betty have have dealt with this yourself, um, having to pull out a couple of years ago from the Lakes International Comic Art Festival. There were, you know, there was harassment. There was there were threats and and that sort of thing. Tim Doyle came after you for for various reasons. Do you feel like we're at the apex? of this cancel culture thing. I mean, the article from Bleeding Fool being the first of a series coming out about this this whisper network, 
could we possibly be starting to see the cracks in all of that? Maybe, maybe with the crowdfunding success, uh, the Walmart distribution deal that you guys have, uh, what Peter Samedi is doing over at Alterna, could we, could we possibly be seeing a loosening of that stranglehold that this, that this group has on the comics industry? Are we going to see a little bit more democratization of the creative, do you think? I, I mean, I think you're watching it. Uh, you know, I, I hope so. I hope so for the sake of younger creators because uh, nobody should have to go through what we went through. Nobody should have to go through that. Um, it sucks. It's horrible. Uh, and But it also uh, hardened us uh, to a degree that we probably wouldn't be here doing what we're doing now if, um, you know, we weren't sh- uh, sharpened on a hard stone, right? Um, but still, I don't wish it on anyone. Uh, part, I, I, you know, yeah, I, <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah. I think they're gonna. There's a there's a group of there's a group uh, of uh, and I don't of people. I don't want to be specific. I, in fact, sure. I don't even keep up with it um, at all, really. But they're certainly a type of person that is going to cancel until everything around them is canceled, and they're uh, the king over a pile of ashes and, um, just stay away from those people and don't fear them and, and you'll be fine. Uh, sci-fi snob in the chat says to let you know, uh, to let Betty know that, uh, he loved her work on killer be killed. So awesome. yeah, very good. That along. Now, uh, and, and real quick, we just got a couple of minutes. Has, has the cancel culture, cause I saw Betty did colors on a TKO book. Have the opportunities for doing uh, work on other books, has that been impacted by all of this? I mean, certainly you don't have the time to do a lot with other things, but have the discussions slackened? Have there been fewer opportunities because you guys are a wrong think crowd, or has has it changed just because you're focused on allegiance and you're not even looking at that stuff? Well, I mean, first of all, I can't accept your premise that we're part of the wrong think crowd, but uh, th- that's a semantical. Sure, you know, but in terms of in terms of in, yeah, but in terms of the cancel culture and their perception of you right. being part of the wrong crowd, has that affected any opportunities that might have come your way? Do you think? Uh, it, you know, I it has in it. It has. Um, I mean, certainly, we, I mean, she lost a contract, but I can't say. I'm not going to say who or point sure. names uh, about anybody. So it, I, I think it's almost it's not on a company basis. I think it's all based around individuals and their preferences. So it might be individual editors or people within an organization or other creatives that might be independent that just decide they don't want anything to do with you uh, anymore. But it, it's 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 a mixed bag. So it. it and I think it almost boils down to the individual uh, with or the individual within an organization. Uh, so, it, you know, I, I just don't want to throw anyone under a bus, but it certainly has had an effect. Um, you know, of course, now we're, you know, we decline all offers for work. Uh, Elizabeth, you know, still gets offers uh, and, you know, we probably we would be fine either way, but it definitely it definitely Im- had an effect on us, uh, you know, so, but we would have, despite it saying it would have had an effect, we w- would have been fine, no matter what we would have done, because uh, we're very confident in our abilities and we love and trust each other and we, 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 we make our way, so. Well, and if somebody wanted to make their way to, uh, to finding you online, the, the website Allegiance Arts, Dot com and I understand Allegiance Arts is the Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to find you. Yeah, and Instagram. So it's a, you can check us out. We're more active on Facebook and Instagram than we are on on Twitter. Uh, just let's just enjoy the conversation more okay. <laughs> on those platforms. But um, but yeah. Okay, and we will put the links to those in our show notes here. Mitch Breitweiser. Uh, 
initially had not planned on spending the whole hour on this, but I'm glad we did. I think uh, I think it's been a, a a very good conversation to have. And uh, you are welcome to come back on anytime, sir. And we talk about uh, how things are going over to Allegiance and and your history in comics, and maybe even tell a few stories on on how you and Betty got uh, got together. So. I'd love to do it. Thank you for your time, Jason. All right. Thank you. And those of you who are watching, uh, thank you very much. Those of you in the chat, thank you for your, uh, your comments and, uh, and, and feedback and uh, a C plus. Okay. So uh, sci-fi snob gives me a C plus for my interview. So that's okay. That's all right. It's past. Well, it, might, it might've been my fault. <laughs> no, that's all, right. all right. So those of you who would like to support this channel, there's a couple of ways you can do that. We do have a discount code uh, negotiated over at superhero stuff.com. You can use the code sci-fi for me 10 when you check out. And besides giving us a thumbs up and sharing the link, you could also support us through our subscribe star account uh, over there. And if you would like a sticker, you can send us a self-addressed stamped envelope to 1503 Main Street, number 305, Grandview, Missouri, 64030. Mitch Breitweiser, thank you very much, sir, for being here today. And uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. And we will be back again tomorrow at noon, live from the bunker. Thanks for watching, everyone. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.